Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Anuj Tiwari. In today's episode, I have Anurag Devkota in our studio to discuss the issue of voting rights or the lack thereof for the Nepali diaspora. We base our conversation off of Anurag's 2020 opaque piece that was published in the record following the Supreme Court verdict which was in response to a public interest litigation filed by his team to grant external voting rights. The relevance of this topic is more so today as we approach our next general election in a matter of days, but without the court-mandated provision. Anurag is a human rights lawyer at the Law and Policy Forum for Social Justice. He holds an LLM degree from Loyola University, Chicago. He is the incoming Global Criminal Justice Fellow at the Center for Criminology, Oxford University, and the Civil Society and Public Administration Fellow at the Toronto Metropolitan University. He also runs Rights Lab, a research institution that works on the issues of rule of law, democracy, human rights, and migration governance. Anurag and I discuss his reasons behind filing the public interest litigation in 2017 and his take on the failure of the Election Commission of Nepal to implement the verdict of the Supreme Court. Anurag argues that the lack of political representation of the Nepali diaspora, especially those who are out for labor migration, is a key reason behind their terrible living and working conditions, and that it is our responsibility to ensure their right to vote, given that the country relies so much on their contribution. We also discuss some of the systemic and political challenges to implementing external voting, including logistics, cost and political will and the practice of several countries in Asia and Africa that are similar to Nepal. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome Anurag, delighted to have you here at Pods by PEI. I really appreciate your time and effort to be with us here. Shall we get on with the conversation? Absolutely. Four months after the last general election in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled for out-of-country voting rights and directed the Election Commission of Nepal to make necessary arrangements. As one of the members of the legal team that filed the PIL, Public Interest Litigation, can you please explain the rationale behind your advocacy for this issue? Thank you. To start with, I would like to give you all a sense of the timeline. So we had filed the PIL on uh, 27th April 2017. It was a few months before the general election of 2017. And the Supreme Court's ruling came out on 21st March 2018. Um, now, coming to the rationale behind the advocacy and the PIL, you know, I might have to give a brief background of our work. So large part of our work uh, has been around, you know, defending and upholding the rights of Nepali migrant workers and trying to establish a pro-migrant workers regime back home. And through our strategic litigation, we are aiming towards a revised and reformed policy and normative frameworks back home. So we all know the realities that, you know, migrant workers are dealing with day in and day out. Uh, and there's very little that the country or the government has done to protect their lives or, or their rights. The international airport receives in the average of two to three dead bodies of Nepali migrant workers from countries like Gulf and Malaysia, 
while hundreds are languishing behind the bar in charges which even they are not aware of in the absence of legal assistance or representations in these destination countries. While because of the debt trap back home, many are suffering from mental health issues and the rates of suicide are rising and it's very, very alarming. Now that we've clarified the rationale for the PIL and the context behind the filing, what is Nepal losing out on because this has not happened? Um, that's a very nice question. So if I can put it this way, you know, Nepal is not practicing democracy in its true sense by disenfranchising the significant electorate. You know, by significant, I mean, if I have to rely on the data of the government of Nepal, I'm not talking about the whole diaspora. I'm just taking example of the migrant workers. You know, the documented migrant workers who have obtained the labor permit to, uh, to go to countries like Gulf and Malaysia in the pursuit of employment or in the pursuit of better income and employment opportunities. So the data of the government, the Ministry of Labor, Employment and Social Security's data finds that, you know, in, in last 10 years, so by 10 years, I mean uh, the data from 2008 to 2018, you know, it finds that there are 400,000 absentee population, absentee migrant workers population in Nepal. So by 400,000, I'm not referring to those uh, who are undocumented. You know, that's a whole different uh, sides to it. So I'm basically talking about those migrant workers who have taken the labor approval from the government and went to these de destination countries for, for the employment opportunities or to find a job. So there are significant person who have opted for the irregular channels to go to these countries. So they don't come under the data of the government. And there are significant number of migrant workers who are bound to India for work. So we are not covering that data. So we're just covering the documented migrant workers, you know, the regular migrant workers. So the number is so significant. 400,000 is a significant number, number which could swing the election results in Nepal. Even with that, you know, it's for with, even with 400,000, like excluding the other numbers, other significant numbers, it's still the 14% of Nepal's population. So by that, I mean 14% of these population who, by virtue of the constitution of this country, was guaranteed a fundamental right to, you know, take part in the public affairs in this country, who has, who enjoy the freedom of expression and opinion by virtue of the fundamental rights of the constitution of this country are significantly ignored or excluded uh, when it comes to exercising their voting rights. So by that, we are not actually practicing democracy in its true sense. That's what I meant. So what Nepal is losing out, I, I think I would like to take it more through the lens of migration governance and labor mobility because uh, the policy responses, you know, if we look into the, the policy and normative frameworks of this country, it does not speak the language of the migrant workers. It, it has deliberately ignored the rights and the plights of migrant workers, you know. The, the policy, if you look into the policies of, of the Nepal, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the uh, labor migration or foreign employment, that's what we call it legally, 
the labor migration policies are mostly focused on the compliances and the security deposit of the recruitment agencies. And if you if you search for what are the rights that are enshrined in the labor migration policies of this country, you don't have any answers because there aren't any rights that has been guaranteed by the governing legislation of this country. So, um, so I think uh, it's 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 high time. You know, the the policymakers should think from this lens and and you know take these concerns and everyday plights of Nepali migrant workers and reflect that in the uh, policy framework. Could you just give any example of best practices? Absolutely. So, so when we take examples of the best practices, you know, uh, we always make sure that uh, we had the best practices on table when we do this discussion. So every time uh, we have to stumble upon uh, the example of Philippines. The best practices, for instance, in countries like Philippines is that they have been practicing out-of-country voting since 2004. However, it was enshrined in the constitution back in 1987. So by that virtue, you know, they have uh, set examples in all fronts of migration governance and maybe the best in Southeast Asia when it comes to policy frameworks and protecting the rights of uh, migrant workers uh, or absentee migrant workers. So the changes that Philippines has introduced um, kind of makes it a champion country when it comes to recognizing the rights of workers and their families. You know, for example, the domestic labor law of Philippines protect workers even when they are not in the Philippines. Or I, I can say that, you know, they could still enjoy the labor rights beyond the territory of, of the Philippines or of their state. Similarly, they have amazing reintegration policies for returning migrant workers, which includes uh, amazing microfinancing projects. Uh, they have a vibrant embassy and a strong presence of a support system, uh, even in the administratively complex countries like Qatar, Saudi, and other GCC countries. So the Philippine government, the Filipino government has even established, you know, the dedicated schools in destination countries uh, where the children of migrant workers could enroll their children. You know, uh, they go by the name Philippine School Overseas, PSO. Uh, so this is the classic example of what could be done if there's a political will to do it. And it looks like uh, it's still a far cry for a country like ours, but then having that right, having having a voice represented in or during the lawmaking process, maybe someday we could be there where the Philippines is today. It has been four and a half years since the Supreme Court ruling, but external voting rights have not been materialized to this day. As you mentioned in your op-ed, there are multifaceted reasons behind the lag but let's first start with understanding the logistical challenges for the election commissions of Nepal to implement this decision. In defense of the state, are there any constraints in terms of resources? I agree, there are logistical challenges to it, but I don't think it's something that's not doable. More than 150 countries have been practicing it. The challenges, however, I foresee is with finding the right model that suits well with the geographical, political, and economic context of Nepal. So a feasibility study should give an answer to this, is what I feel. You know, if I have to give example of India, 
They are in the final stage of implementing the out-of-country voting now. But similar to our case, you know, it, it all started with a PIL in India too. But what the Supreme Court of India did was it established a task force or a committee comprising of the experts, you know, uh, the experts in the relative field. Uh, there were professors, government officials, member of election commission, civil society organization working in this field, including others. And, and the Supreme Court basically directed them to furnish or come out with a, a feasibility study report on the model that works well in the context of India. So what India did was they revised their law. So they revised People Representation Act of India. And now, now couple, it, it's been a couple of weeks since the Supreme Court, after taking the assurance of Attorney General of India, uh, they decided on either postal voting or proxy voting would fit best in the context of India. So I feel that, you know, from this example, I, I personally feel that there could be logistic challenge to it, but I don't you think it's the same case with holding elections in Nepal as well? You know, there are logistic challenges to it as well. So, I mean, with the right will and right intention, this should be and this could be done. This is what I feel. The argument often made against external voting is its costliness, and you acknowledge this as well. However, you go a step further and defend external voting rights. Could you please share your arguments for external voting rights despite their costly nature? So coming to the cost, I, I really don't buy the idea that uh, it's the cost factor. Uh, I still think this is very much doable. You know, if I have to take examples from what's happening around the globe, countries with GDP per capita similar to Nepal's in terms of purchasing power parity, like Senegal, and even those with lower GDP per capita, like Mozambique, they have guaranteed the mail-in voting option for their migrant workers in recognition of their significant contribution to the national economy. But uh, I would really like to recenter my argument to the contribution of migrant workers in the economy of this nation, in the economy of Nepal. Because the country runs on remittances. Had it been not for them, you know, we don't know where the country would be economically. The remittances has more or less, you know, showing signs of Dutch disease syndromes, you know. We are at the phase where we don't have an answer to what else if it's not for the remittances. So I think it's about the time the country should give back. It should be both ways. The country is drawing all the benefits while the migrant workers are bearing all the cost. So I personally feel that all those problems associated with migrant workers, you know, the death, the legal representation, health issues, these are all preventable, you know. Uh, had there been a little added effort or had there been a little more accountability on part of the government. So maybe having the representative or having someone who could represent their voices in the parliament, in lawmaking discussion, and in similar important platforms, you know, by that ways, I think it would create a win-win situation for both government as well as the migrant workers. Besides resources, you note that there is also a political dimension to the challenges in implementing external voting. Could you please elaborate on this? That's a very interesting question. Um, you know, four years and a half, uh, yet we have not been able to implement the decision of Supreme Court. I think it all 
boils down to the same answer, the lack of political will. Otherwise, I don't see a challenge per se if the political parties are convinced of their voter banks in diasporas. Um, and given the political will, I think it's very much doable. It's just about, you know, what model works well in context of Nepal. You know, it could be electronic voting or mail-in voting or proxy voting or poll station in respective embassies um, or consular offices. You know, if we could do that or if we could commission that feasibility study, uh, keeping the current context in the frame and come out with a substantive finding and orient election commission of Nepal, this is very much doable. I'm optimistic. And if we are to dissect on the technicalities um, on the eligibility criteria, I think it's very plain and it's very simple uh, because the Supreme Court has already clarified the ground, you know, in the case of Purnachandra Paudel versus Election Commission back in 2011, where it has mentioned that, you know, a citizen certificate to be the, the important criteria for being included as a voter. So uh, a mere citizen's certificate would clear all grounds of the eligibility criteria by virtue of the decision of the Supreme Court of Nepal back in 2011, which has been reiterated by 2018 decision of the Supreme Court in our case. And the other ground, uh, if we are to take uh, reference to the Constitution of Nepal, you know, Article 286 six of the Constitution of Nepal mentions that while delimiting the constituencies, attention shall be paid to the population density. So population density is uh, categorized as one of the criteria for de delimiting the, con uh, the constituencies during the election. There are other grounds, uh, for example, geographic conditions, transportation proximity and all, you know, I think that wouldn't be an issue. So I would like to really highlight on the population density part because as I've also highlighted on my op-ed, uh, some, some of Nepal's biggest provinces have same population density as the Nepali population density in diaspora, especially uh, if we take example of the same data that I mentioned before, uh, the documented migrant workers uh, who are based in Malaysia, Qatar, or Saudi Arabia. So to sum up, you know, the major challenge I see is with finding a feasible model or feasible method that suits for our context. But election commission has already done it before. And I think it is in a position to do it again, you know, taking into cognizance the present context of Nepal. But I also feel that it's about time that the political analyst should come out with the political economy analysis, you know, of the out-of-country voting and assist Election Commission of Nepal in devising the method or model of out-of-country voting for Nepal. It is known that the diaspora is involved in party-level politics, as you mentioned earlier in your answer. The involvement is so significant that major political parties have their diaspora party wings. Despite that, there is a reluctance to devise a policy that makes them eligible to vote. Why do you think this is the case? To the best of my knowledge, I feel that the major political parties uh, have no sense or lesser sense of their voter base in diaspora, you know. So I think they're not willing to take chance with that, maybe. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, the number is significant enough to swing the election result, you know. If, say, if there's a new political party, and let's say 
if only the migrant worker based in Gulf and Malaysia voted for that single party, that would be the largest political party in Nepal. Maybe they don't want to take that risk. Secondly, so redirecting the campaign financing, you know, uh, beyond the border of the states, I think it has its own set of uh, challenges, especially from the financial cost side. So that could be one reason, maybe. Uh, third, I see is with, uh, you know, uh, since the chances that uh, non-resident Nepalese, NRNs, or diaspora funding would be channeled through election campaigns, the fear that there would be an intervention of NRNs in promoting their personal or collective interest or agendas through elected political parties, you know, very hypothetically speak, that could be one reason. And fourth, uh, I strongly agree on this because um, the campaign of out-of-country voting is tagged as a flagship movement of the growing alternative political parties. Uh, they have been coming up with this movement on no chalne, vote na chalne since a long time now. So I believe, you know, it might have established a sense of insecurity among the mainstream political parties, mostly from the ground that the alternative political parties might have a better voter base outside of the country. This all could be the reason, but this is very personal opinion. The issue of external voting has definitely lost the traction it once gained through your PIL and the court's verdict. However, you have said so far it is essential to uphold Nepali democracy. Why is the issue not getting picked up in the mainstream public sphere? Mm. I feel that it's not that it has lost its traction, but the discussions around this issue has been limited to closed rooms and closed groups. Uh, the civil societies of Nepal are advocating it through their closed stakeholder meetings and discussion. But uh, it has in recent time not found the platform that it deserves, is what I feel. I think it is the lack of political will, whether we accept it or not. And then uh, there could be associated factor behind that um, lack of political will. Uh, especially when it comes to the mainstream political parties of Nepal, as I mentioned earlier. But then I just don't blame the mainstream political parties. I think it is equally the mainstream news agencies, mainstream media houses, you know, they could or should do well, you know, to uh, keep up the fire burning, um, as in to keep the issue alive, you know. But uh, unfortunately, that hasn't been a case. Um, there were some hustles and discussions around Supreme Court judgment, you know, prior to local level election. But then this time around, I haven't found uh, or I haven't come across any of those movement or maybe uh, I might not be aware of it. So um, uh, I was also really counting on, you know, the political economy analysts to come up with the PEA. Uh, their political economy analysis, but unfortunately it wasn't the case either. So I think there's no point putting blame on the political parties, although they share the heavier side of it, but I think rest of us, we could all do better than this. That being the case, what are your next steps in advocating for external voting rights? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think the discussions should come out of the closed room to mainstream public platforms. 
and uh, speaking from myself, you know, as a lawyer, we could as well take up the case on the contempt of court, you know, for not abiding by the directive order of the Supreme Court. But then I've also heard that there's already a case of contempt being filed in, this, uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, but I am I am personally not aware about the status of that contempt. So I think the ball is in the government's court. So I think the pressure should be on them. There's less that judiciary could do now. I think it has done enough. So the ball is in the government's court. We are really looking forward to the executives to execute on this. Personally, I'm also planning to take forward the advocacy from two fronts. Uh, one, from the right best perspective. I have been writing about it. I will write about it and advocate around the issues, uh, you know, and keep the issue alive. I mean, to, to any scale, to any degree uh, that I could uh, do personally. You know, the other is from political economy analysis, uh, political economy pr perspective. I think this part is majorly lacking in the current discourse, you know, or in the current situation. And I, I absolutely think that this is an absolute necessity or this is absolute necessity, which uh, should help election commission to determine the right approach as well as the government to come out uh, with a robust policy and normative framework, you know. Uh, this should, I think this should provide a substantive evidence for the government to come out with evidence policies. Have we had a strong political economy analysis? Definitely. Lastly, could you please share some resources to get started on this issue for our listeners tuning in? So for the full text of the judgment of out-of-country voting, uh, you can find it in the website of Supreme Court of Nepal. And if you're interested in my article, it's on the record. And it's entitled as Nepal's Own Mail-in Voting Crisis. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anurag, for being on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. All the best for your future endeavors. And thank you very much for bringing the issue of out-of-country voting to the public light. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Pods by PI. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anurag on the issues of granting external voting rights to the Nepali diaspora. We discussed his takes on the rationale of the issue, systemic and political challenges in its non-implementation, and key pointers for the election commission to execute the 2018 verdict. Today's episode was produced by Saurabh Lama with support from Nirjan Rai, Kushi Hang, and Sedon Kangsakar. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and edited by Saurabh Lama. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Sakya from Jindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at tweet2pei. That's tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Anuj Tiwari. We will see you soon in our next episode.